you guys know that uh, we've talked the last few weeks that Pastor Derek and Rachel are on sabbatical, and, and so they're having a time of prayer and just seeking the Lord about the, the future here at Calvary Chapel Las Vegas and what he has in store for us, and I know they're praying for you. Are you praying for them? All right, we want them to get back here. I miss that guy. I love him so much. And uh, we've been doing this study called A Cloud of Witnesses. Have you guys enjoyed it so far? Yeah, we, uh, we looked at the life of Joseph and the life of Joshua. And today we're going to look at Gideon and Samson together. And uh, so I'm excited about it. Let's read a scripture. Turn to Hebrews 11, 32 through 35. And after we read this, we'll pray together. Hebrews 11, 32 through 35 says, And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to fight, flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Let's pray together. Father, we do love you and thank you for your word. God, we understand that these are eternal truths that you have given to your children to understand you, to see the things that are eternal, things that become foundational to our lives, things that transform us in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we desire today, God, that, that our hearts would be laid open before you, that you would renew us, renew our mind, that we would walk in your ways, that if there are any thoughts or philosophies that we hold that are contrary to your word, God, that they would be taken captive for the cause of Christ. We are your children, and we pray, God, that you would do a work in us today as you see fit. Thank you for your precious spirit that lives within the lives of believers. Thank you, God, for Jesus who died that we can be reconciled to you and have new life. We trust you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. So the passage in Hebrews, we call Hebrews chapter 11 the hall of faith, right? And, and we see all of these people that are listed there. And what's interesting is that the people that are listed there are all normal people who've had struggles... In fact, what I love about God's word is it doesn't pull any punches. It tells you the great things that people accomplish uh, with God and also their struggles and their failures. And so what we look at today, there are actually five judges listed in these few short verses, and we're going to concentrate on two of them. But before I get to them, I want to tell you what a judge is, a judge or judges, are the deliverers of Israel. And this happened in between Joshua taking the children of Israel into the promised land and King Saul being crowned approximately 1050 B.C. 
there's a like 300 year span of time that the judges were active. And these judges were not like Judge Judy. It wasn't Judge Joe Brown, right? It, that's not the type of judge it was. They weren't giving people traffic tickets for misparking their camel or anything like that. These judges were really leaders that were raised up, pinpointed by God to lead, but usually around a military conflict, right? Something would happen and there would have to be some sort of military action taken. And so these judges were raised up as leaders. And when they weren't doing those specific things, very often they would just kind of fade back into the fabric of their culture and society and then step out again as God called them to. There were 14 male judges and one female judge mentioned in the book of Judges. Out of all of them, they all, human beings, had failures. They were all, in fact, unlikely heroes. Meaning what? Meaning they're just humans that were used by an almighty God. That's good news for you and me. Because we're just humans, unlikely heroes that God will work in and use to accomplish his deeds which is an amazing, amazing thought. Now, why were these judges active in those days? It was because Israel came in and out of apostasy. What's apostasy? Apostasy is a falling away from God. And so what what we notice about their history is they would be close to God and following his ways. Something would happen where there would be a falling away of people's hearts towards God and they would get involved in idol worship. They would begin to live a life of syncretism, which is taking various religions and trying to combine them into a new religion and just throwing Jehovah God in the mix. And there were several reasons why that would happen, but every time they would sin, every time they would rebel against God and be disobedient and go backwards, every time that would happen, God would allow something or cause something to happen to make them come to a place where they would cry out to him and he would save them again. And he continued to pursue them relentlessly to keep them close to his heart. That was the goal. Right? And so we see things like this phrase, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, they forgot the Lord their God. And we see that repeatedly throughout the book of Judges. You know, when I, I talked about syncretism, the idea of mixing different religions together, here's how that might play out. <clears throat> they went into the promised land and they were told not to intermarry Not because of racial issues. It was not a racial topic. It was a religious topic. God did not want them to take the idol worship and pagan worship of the cultures that were there. Told them not to, to intermarry, but they did anyway. And they began to mix those religions together. And God says what? He said to them, have no gods before me. God would not tolerate it. And so he began to work in their life to bring them back to him. Now, before we judge the children of Israel too harshly, I want you to think about us today. We don't like to be told no either. 
We don't want to suffer. We don't want to wait. And, and when things happen that we don't like, there's a tendency within us to pull away from God instead of running to him and holding on to him, which is what we should do. So there's a tendency to be angry at God when things don't go our way. And that's what was happening with the children of Israel. And today, you know, we still have a lot of mixing of religious ideas happening, don't we? We have people who think that all roads lead to God. And if people are sincere, they should be able to believe what they want and God should just have to take it. And if that's not what it says in God's word. In fact, he says there's only one way to come to the Father and that's through Jesus Christ. So we can see that we're not, you know, we're not dealing with things today too much differently than they dealt with back then. So all five of these judges that are listed in this passage, we had some, they struggled. I'm going to quickly talk about three of them before I get into Gideon and Samson. One is Barak. Now, who's Barak? Do you remember what happened with him? God told him to step out, but he refused to do it. He's afraid to step out until Deborah insisted, and then he did it. And he's mentioned in the Hall of Faith. We have Jephthah mentioned, and he is mentioned even though he made a vow that was rash and impulsive that ended up costing his daughter her life. He's still mentioned in the Hall of Faith. What about Samuel? Did you know that Samuel appointed his sons as judges even though they were evil men? God still mentioned him in the hall of faith. Why is that important? It's important to realize that God is merciful and that God still uses our lives in spite of our failings when we bow our knee to him, when we will come to him, when we will repent to him, when we believe him. So let's get into Gideon and Samson. Now, here's the truth. There's no way that I can cover five chapters of Judges in 30 minutes. So we're going to take a little snapshot of each of these characters. And you guys have heard their stories before, so I think we'll be good. Gideon, mighty man of valor. This is Judges 6 and 7. Read that uh, this week if you could. Uh, Gideon is called upon to save the people of Israel by leading them against the Midianites. It's a common theme of apostasy. They had uh, fallen away from God again. And it says in Judges chapter 6 that what was evil in the sight of the Lord, they did what was evil, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian. So what would happen is the Midianites would come in, and they would take their crops. Every time it was time for Israel to harvest their food, Midian would swoop in and get it. And they would come in with all their livestock and everything else and wipe them out. And so it was giving grief to the Israelites. In fact, we find out that, it, that Gideon was hiding in a wine press, threshing wheat, right, trying to separate the wheat from the chaff in the wine press, hiding because he didn't want anybody to steal his food. He was hiding there when the angel of the Lord appeared to him. The angel of the Lord is a theophany or a Christophany. And what that means is that Christ appeared in a form as a, of an angel. And this was Christ appearing before man long before Christ came in a manger. 
in Bethlehem, right? So we call that a theophany or a Christophany. And he appears to Gideon and he salutes him. He gives a salutation saying, Hi, mighty man of valor. Hey, courageous man. He says, You are going to deliver the Israelites from the hand of Midian. Gideon was like, Wait, what? Me? Are you kidding me? Not me. I'm a nobody. I am no one. I am nowhere. I have no one that cares about me. My culture is, ugh, I don't like my culture. I don't like my standing in the culture. I am the low man on the totem pole. Get away from me. I don't want to hear it. Okay, I'm adding some of that in there. But you get the gist. He was like, no, you got the wrong guy. Mighty man of valor, here I am hiding in the dark, threshing wheat, grinding wheat, he, he was not feeling it. And as he listened to the angel of the Lord, and as he asked the angel of the Lord to show him that this was real, he began to sense and understand that God's presence was there. And he was encouraged because God was there. And the first task that he was commanded to do after he believed was to destroy the altar of Baal or Baal, to destroy that. Remember, the children of Israel, as proof of their apostasy, had built an altar to Baal. And so Gideon was told, destroy the altar. And he knew it was going to tick people off. So you know what he did? In, in the cover of darkness at night, he and some friends went and tore down that altar. The next day, the people were enraged. They knew it had to be Gideon. And they went to Gideon's dad's house and said, let Gideon come out here because we're going to kill him. And the dad wisely said, if Baal is really a god, he can kill him himself. Saving his son. But seeking reassurance from the Lord Gideon twice more, he twice more asks for proof that God is in it. That God really wanted him to be the one to deliver Israel from the Midianites. And God graciously graciously said, yes, I will show you. And remember what Gideon did. He said, here, on this one night, I'm going to lay a fleece out on the ground. And if everything around is wet, but it's dry, I'll know it's you. And then God did that. And the next day, Gideon's like, hmm, we'll do it the other way. And this time, if it's like that, I'll know it's you. And so God did it. So encouraged by the acts of God, Gideon and his men Go for it. So Gideon goes and he talks to the people and he asks everybody who can come and fight, fight. And guess what? 32,000 men showed up. 32,000 men showed up to fight. And they weren't like trained soldiers. They had like pickaxes. and I mean, They didn't have pickaxes, but I don't know what they had, like wooden digging things and you know clay pots. And some of them probably were fighters, but not many. 32,000 people, and Gideon's thinking, okay, Midian has 135,000. I've got 32,000, so I'm a little bit outnumbered. But man, you know, God said, do it. I bet we can do it. And then God says, tell the ones who are afraid, they can go home. All right, guys, 
All you, all you guys, hey, you guys, all you guys who are afraid, you can take off. 22,000 men left. <laughs> 22,000, are you kidding me? I got, oh, poor Gideon. Poor Gideon, right? He was probably thinking, this cannot be real. God, this can't be you. I must have been wrong. I must have misheard you because everything I see with my eyes says, this is ridiculous. God said, no, there's still too many. We have another test. You know, the water drinking test. We're going to give him that. And whoever drinks water this way, they can stay. So they take the test. He now has 10,000 men. They're drinking water. And out of that, 9,700 men drank the wrong way. There were 300 men left. Can you imagine 300 men to fight an army of 135,000? Gideon must have thought this was the most insane thing that he had ever seen. But to his credit, he believed God. He believed God and 300 comrades, he directed them to surround the camp of Midian and they were going to all blow their trumpet when he told them to and they were all going to break the pitchers hiding the torches at a certain time and he gave the order and that happened and then all of Midian thought, oh my gosh, we're surrounded and they began to fight each other and destroy each other. God did a miracle with only 300 men against 135,000. And I bet those 300 men, <laughs> I have a feeling they weren't the cream of the crop. You know, the 300 guys that had nowhere else to go. The 300 guys who would rather go to battle than go home. Remember how King David's men the men that, his mighty men that joined him were 400 men and they were distressed and in debt. You remember that? They, they were a, a motley crew. And I kind of get the feeling that that's how it was with Gideon. He had 300 men and he probably were not the 300 he would have chosen. And yet God used it to bring about a mighty victory. And God didn't tell him there's nowhere in the word that says that God told him about the plan to put the men around the camp and to wait to blow the horn. God didn't tell him about the idea of breaking the pitchers and showing the torches. Where did that idea come from? Maybe it was God. Maybe it was divine inspiration. Or maybe it was Gideon's mind. You know, it's something that interesting that happens when God fills us with his Holy Spirit and tells us to do something. And very often he uses the gifts and talents and skills that we've developed to bring those things to pass. It's like this interesting partnership, isn't it? Where God's the captain, he's in charge, he does all the hard work, but he very often will use our own skills and ideas to do work. So Gideon saw a mighty victory. So in spite of doubting or possibly wavering, Gideon decided to step out and the results speak for themselves. Let's talk about Samson. Samson, Judges 13 through 16, the strongest man in the world, right? 
I want you to know that his name means sunshine. So I picture, okay, I picture Junior Fightel. You guys know Junior? Big old muscular dude. I picture somebody like that, but, you know, with the name of Sunshine. And it's interesting because he was called to be a judge in one of the darkest times of Israel's history. So Sunshine, bringing light, the desire of God was to bring light to this dark time. This was the seventh apostasy during this period of time, the seventh time that the Israelites had fallen away from God, and now they were being oppressed by the Philistines. So Samson was raised up to be a judge. He was born a Nazarite, meaning that he was separated or set aside for God. He wasn't supposed to drink wine or any, any juice from fruit. He wasn't supposed to cut his hair. And he wasn't supposed to touch anything that was dead, human or animal. Uh, so there were just certain things he wasn't supposed to do. His mother was told that they were visited by an angel pre-announcing his birth. So he was in very rare company, right? John the Baptist and Jesus were pre-announced. Isaac was pre-announced. And Samson was pre-announced by an angel. So there was a special calling on this young man's life. But the problem was is that Samson ignored his vow. Yes, he may have made the vow. His mom made the vow for him. But he ignored it. And he did whatever he wanted to do. In fact, he had a problem Although God empowered him supernaturally and gave him great strength, he had a passion for women and a lust for women that seemed to be more important to him than the will of God. And he was impulsive. During his wedding to a Philistine woman, Samson was deceived and humiliated, and to, to strike back, he killed a thousand men. But in the end, it was his passionate obsession and affair with a prostitute named Delilah that, that brought him to the end. Remember how he toyed with her. He lied to her over and over again, and she was not having it. And she continued to press in and manipulate and nag, and, and, and he toyed with her. He thought he could handle it. He thought he was in control of it. And finally, he revealed to her the secret of his strength, his hair was cut, and he was weak. He was arrested. His eyes were gouged out. He was put in a prison where he was grinding wheat in the prison as a blind man. And he was brought out of the temple of Dagon, a false god, a demonic god of the Philistines. And he was chained to pillars and used for sport. People made fun of him, and he was their entertainment. With the Spirit of God upon Samson, he was a powerful man with supernatural strength. But the story reveals that he was also a slave to his own passions. His personal life wrecked him. He was courageous before men, but he was weak before women. What's interesting here is we see these two men on either end of the spectrum we see somebody who, who, Gideon, who thinks that he's the worst, he's the lowest in his culture, he's not proud of his culture, 
He, he thinks that he's a nobody and that he'll never amount to anything. And then on this side over here, you see this guy who thinks he's all that. He's strong. He's got it all going for him. He can toy with people. You know, he's the king of all he surveys. You got two people on either end of the spectrum. But the problem was is that both of them were focused on themselves. Both of them were just looking at themselves. Being consumed with our personal weaknesses and strengths can be detrimental to our spiritual growth. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less often. Right? So sometimes we think, oh, Samson, you know, what a, what a jerk. You know, he thought he was all that in a bag of chips. I said that last service and a lady stopped me and said, you know why that analogy works? And I said, why? She goes, because a bag of chips is all hot air. There's only that much chips in the bottom. I'm like, yeah, that works. And over here, we have this guy who was all self-deprecatory, right? He was always, oh, I'm the, oh, man, you know, I'm, I'm scum. I'm, I'm low, you know, I'm the lowest of low. And we think, wow, he's humble. No, he was focused on himself, he couldn't get out of himself. Listen, that type of self-degrading behavior is really pride. Took me years to realize that, but that was me. That's what I spent my life doing, feeling sorry for myself, saying all kinds of bad things before anybody else could because I thought that's what they were thinking. Just self-centered. What about God? Where's God in this equation? Where's God in the lives of either one of these men? Where's God in our lives? Do we see him as somebody who can take us in our very weak state and use us for his glory? That in our weakness, his strength would be made perfect? Do we realize that that God loves us and that God wants to work in our lives? Do we realize that we don't have to depend on our own giftings and talents to succeed? Those gifts and talents aren't even ours to begin with. They were given to us by God and put into us by God. We don't get any glory for that. James chapter 4 says, but he gives more grace, meaning God. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. What does that mean? Why is he saying that we should be sad, that we should let our joy turn to gloom? And what? why? Why is he saying that? Well, because you know what? When, when it's all about us, when all we're thinking about is us, the Bible is saying to us, you know what? Humble yourself, kneel before God, and recognize that there is someone greater than you. There is someone greater than you, and you should take a minute and just center your mind on him, on his greatness, and on the fact that we ourselves are not God. This is speaking to us that we should humble ourselves before the Lord and be completely dependent upon him. You know, and I feel like 
I, in my life, I want to trust someone higher than me, stronger than me, wiser than me. I want to trust somebody who's perfect, who's all-knowing, who's all-powerful, who's always watching me and always present. I want that God to be in control of me. I want him to be the one I live for. I want him to reign and rule in my life. I don't want to be on the throne of my life. I've tried that, and sometimes I hop on and off that throne, just to be honest with you. Sometimes I think that I should be able to do it my way. I did it my way. Sorry, we're in Vegas, so I had to go for it. <laughs> the truth is that I don't want to be on that throne. I don't want to be on the throne of self. Do you? Don't you want God to be on the throne of your life and live for him? I know you do. Another thing I see from these passages is that God uses imperfect people to accomplish his will. Aren't you glad? God forgives and he shows mercy. And God saw Samson as a man of faith. Even in his failure, even at the end when he was chained to those pillars and his eyes gouged out, Samson said, God, one more time, would you strengthen me? One more time would you use me? And even in his defeat, even in a moment of failure, he cried out to God, and God used him. And it says that God killed, uh, or that Samson killed more in his death than he did in his life. God moved in him. And Gideon felt like a nobody going nowhere who had no one on his side, and God saw him differently. Do you know that God sees you the way that he intends for you to be? Do you know that God sees you with the plans and purposes that he has for you? And he knows that you are able to, to do them. And do you know why? Because he wants to fill you and empower you to do the things he's called you to do. It's him. We are unlikely heroes, but he is supremely the hero of the story. He is the one. Yeah, it's about God. It's not about us, and I'm so grateful. Gideon's first step was to tear down the idols, and it should have been Samson's step as well. And it's the same for you and me. We may have idols in our lives, things that, that we have allowed to become important to us that shouldn't be. Anything that we love more than God is an idol. Anything we love more than him And I, I just, I think about how very often God asks us to do things. He asks us to take steps, you know. Gideon might have thought, okay, you want, me to, you want me to go out and conquer the Midianites, but why are you having me tear down this idol then? Why are we messing with that? Can't I just get to the big stuff? And sometimes I think we're like that. We think, you know, God is telling us to stop this, to change this habit. God is telling us to reach out to this person, to forgive this person, to offer a meal to this person. He's telling us these things, and we're like, we want to push those things aside because we're waiting for the big thing. God, show me the big thing you have for me to do. Show me the big fancy thing. Show me the thing that's going to bring me a pat on the back. Then I'll know you're with me. But God's like, no, these are the things I want to do to build your faith. These are the things I'm asking you to do so you can take steps of obedience. 
Sometimes we think that the preliminary steps that God tells us to do is something to step over to get to the good stuff, but very often those things are the good stuff. It is the very work that God desires to do. Let's think about that. Let's read it again. Sometimes we think that the preliminary steps God tells us to do is something to step over to get to the good stuff, but very often those things are the good stuff. It is the very work that God desires to do. What is he trying to do in your life? What is he trying to build in your life? What is he asking you to do? What small steps is he asking you to take? Another thing that jumped out of me is that God wants to make sure that everybody knows that it's him who brings the victory. It's he who brings the victory, not the might of man. You know, God could have won the Gideon's battle against the Midianites with one man. In fact, he didn't even need a man. He could have just struck them all dead. But he used who he wanted to use to bring about a result so that people would understand that God works in the lives of people. And it's the times when uh, it seems like there's no other hope or times when I feel like, man, God is too late now. He's waited too long. It's too late that then God moves and does something amazing. And I bet you've seen it too. That God moves, that he's faithful to move, to answer in our lives. The last thing I want to bring out today from this passage is the deeper we allow ourselves to be influenced by the glamour and the allurement of sin, the more blind we become. The truth is that Samson was blind long before his eyes were gouged out. He was blind because sin had so calloused him. Sin had seared him so much that he no longer even thought of it as an issue. It wasn't a problem for him to lie. It wasn't a problem for him to manipulate. It wasn't a problem for him to toy with people. It wasn't a problem for him to break his vows anymore because he had done it so long he was deadened to it. And what happened is destruction, destruction of many people's lives and certainly his own self-destruction. You guys realize that although Samson was the leader that the world would have pointed at and said, man, that guy's got everything. He's a charismatic leader, man. He's really, he's got it all. He's got looks. He's got power. He's got prestige. Even though the world would point to him as a leader, the truth is, is that he led himself into sin and he could no longer uh, do what, what God had called him to do. God called him to deliver his people and it did not happen. He failed at delivering the people. He failed at that. But even when he cried out to God, God mercifully gave him victory at the very end. Did you know that when we choose to sin, when we choose to walk in that way, that God will still graciously use our lives, but it brings about great destruction and consequences to our lives. There are consequences to be paid for choosing to sin. 
The Bible says that Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Christ has come that you have life. That's the difference. Satan wants to kill you and destroy your life. Jesus wants to bring you life. There's a quote, I don't remember who said it, but it says, In truth, sin will take us farther than we may intend to go. It will hold us longer than we intend to stay. And furthermore, sin will cost us more than we intend to pay. Sin, sin is something that very often we think we are in control of only to find out that it's controlling us. And then as a believer, when you've given in to that sin over and over again, a lie begins to form in you that says you'll never be free. This is just something you need to live with. But the truth is, is that Jesus died so that you could be set free from the bondage of sin. We're all going to fail. I want you to know that we all struggle and we all sin. None of us are perfect. This is not talking about when we accidentally make a mistake or fall. It's not talking about, this is talking about people who have chosen, they've become seared in their conscience and they have chosen to live a life of chronic sin. They've embraced that habit and now they're believing the lie that they, they cannot be free of it. You can break free. Jesus died to make you free. If you have never given your heart or your life completely to God, chances are that you may not have seen the need for God or even realized that you need to have your sins forgiven. Maybe you never even realized that until this very moment. But I want you to know, the Bible says that God saw you before the foundation of the world. Before he made the world, he saw you. And he realized that he was going to have a plan for you to be reconciled to him, to come to him, even though you fail. Even though you struggle, he was going to make a plan. And that plan was to send his son, Christ, to die on a cross for the forgiveness of sin. It says, for God so loved that he gave his son. He loves you still, and he wants you to know him. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants you to be redeemed. He wants you to come to him. If you're a believer, but you've given in to chronically to temptation, he wants to forgive you too. He wants you to come back to him, to give him your whole heart once again. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Say all. All, all unrighteousness. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning, God, longing 
longing for you, longing to be near you. We thank you, Father, for your presence here. We thank you for the love that you demonstrated when you sent your son to die for the forgiveness of sin. And that same love and that same power, that same mercy, that same grace that was poured out then is poured out now. It remains still. It remains for people who would come to you who desire you to be the Lord of their lives. And God, I pray for those that are here today that may not know you. I pray that you would draw them by your Holy Spirit, that they would respond to you, that they would respond to your love. And I pray for my brothers and sisters who may be struggling. I pray, God, that you would break a sense of defeat off of them and that you would break a sense of shame off of them and instead Father they would be like the prodigal that would run into your loving arms completely forgiven and embraced with your heads bowed and your eyes closed I want to ask you this morning are you someone who has not yet given your life to Christ? Maybe you have never prayed and asked God to be the Lord of your life. You've never come to him in faith and said, yeah, I need you. I want you in my life. I want that new life with you. I want all my sins washed away. I want that newness. If that is you this morning, you're saying, Pastor Jim, pray with me. I want Jesus. Would you lift your hand up right where you are? Just lift your hand up. I see your hand right there. I see your hand in the back. I see your hand over here in the back and on the side. I see you. This is a great opportunity just to come now surrender surrender to a God who saw you before he formed the earth he sees you now he sees your situation he loves you is there anybody else alright believers I'm talking to you now like to break the chains of something that's been holding on to you, if you've believed a lie saying that you'll never be free of something or never forgiven of something, if there's something that feels like a weight around your shoulders that you just want to be free of, if you want to start fresh, you lift your hand up? I see your hand. I see your hand. I see your hands. Praise God. I see your hands.
Can I have everybody stand with me? If you're able to stand, please stand. If you raised your hand today for prayer, whether it's to receive Christ for the very first time or whether it is to have uh, prayer for something in your life that you want broken off of your life, going to ask you to boldly come down to the front. We have the follow-up team down here, and they'll take you back and pray with you. And if you're, if you don't have a Bible, they'd love to give you a Bible. But before we do that, I'd like to pray with you right now. Okay? Let's pray one more time. We're going to pray the prayer of faith. And what that means is that as I say this prayer out loud, that with everything within you, agreeing with this prayer. You are by faith believing it and receiving these same things with me. Okay? Are you ready? Repeat after me. Father, I come to you today and I need you. I admit my need for you. Oh God, please forgive me of all my sin. I want new life. Jesus, thank you for dying on a cross for the forgiveness of my sin. I profess you are my Lord. You are my Savior. And I bow my knee to you. Fill me with your spirit. Thank you. In Jesus' name.